when I am alone, when I'm hurting, I will put my hope in him. When I'm struggling, I need help. His word will guide me. When I cannot go on, when I'm lost, His grace will be enough. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Welcome to week two of I Am Strong, and in this series we're learning from God's Word how to find God's peace and how to find His strength in our darkest moments. And I know in a room this size we represent all sorts of different kinds of pain and difficulty. There's people in a room this size who are going through miscarriages, people going through cancer treatments, people who are losing homes or businesses, people going through divorces. Every struggle you can imagine is in a room this size. And the good news for us today is that God has answers and he has hope for us in the midst of our suffering. Well, last week we started this series and we learned that our suffering is temporary. We learned that when we turn to God with it, he can work good from it. And if you were here a few weeks ago, you saw a video where my six-year-old daughter and I released a raccoon that we had caught in our backyard. And Zoe's six, and she's at that really cute age. In that video, if you missed it, there's this hilarious moment where the raccoon's in the trap. I'm trying to coax him out of the raccoon cage. And Zoe says, Daddy, I think he likes his little home. <laughs> well, on Friday night, Zoe and I were driving out to some friend's house, and we crossed over this bridge, and it said Raccoon Creek, <laughs> that we were crossing over Raccoon Creek. And Zoe said, Daddy, do you think our little friend came to Raccoon Creek and found his other friends? Just the cutest little thing. And I love this age because she's asking these really deep questions about life. I don't know where she started to hear about tsunamis, but apparently she's been learning about them at school or somewhere. Because on the same drive, after Raccoon Creek, she said, Daddy, what causes a tsunami? So I explained, you know, an earthquake under the ocean makes this big wave. Do we need to be afraid of tsunamis? I said, not in Indiana. <laughs> you know, when we lived in California, yeah, but no, we don't have to worry about tsunamis, earthquakes, wildfires. We don't have to worry about any of those things here, okay? And we're talking, and she said, well, well, then what causes the earthquakes? And so we actually started to talk about what you and I are going to talk about today, and that is why is there evil in the world? Why is there pain in the world? Why does the world we live in seem so broken, why is it broken? 
Why are our families broken and divorce happens? Why is our society broken and shootings happen? Why are our bodies broken and sickness happens? And as I talked it through with Zoe, I thought, God, you're just giving me a little practice run here where I get to speak these truths in a way that a six-year-old can understand them. And one of the first things we talked about is this reality that the world we live in is not as it was intended to be. I don't know if you've ever had a product, a car, or something else that you bought it used or over time it wore out, and some of the functions still worked, but it wasn't as it was intended to be. This was the case with my very first car when I was in high school. For $500, I bought a used Volkswagen Golf. And it was a five-speed manual, it was a little hatchback, it was a blast to drive around town, especially in the snow with front-wheel drive. But it had this little quirk that was not supposed to be the way it was designed. Every time I would make a left-hand turn, the horn would honk. <laughs> and so my high school buddies and I, we got in the habit, whenever we'd be driving around town, we'd just smile and wave at people whenever a left-hand turn was coming. Because we knew it would honk and they would look at us, so we'd just be like... Not the way it was intended to be. And if you've ever owned a European or German car, you've probably had some similar things where you say, this is not the way the car is supposed to be working. Well, we can laugh about that with our cars or with our appliances when they do funny things. But when it comes to creation, we're going to see today it's not functioning the way God intended for it to function. And sadly, when that invades our lives, it's usually not funny. It's usually through sickness through pain. And the question we're wrestling with today is this, what can you do when the pain in your life forces you to question if God is good? What can you do when the pain that you're feeling because of what's going on in your body or your community or your family, it makes you wonder, can I really trust God? Is God really good? I shared last week about a medical condition that I have called a hemiplegic episode. And compared to what many of you are going through, it's a very small condition. But when I get it, I get all the symptoms of a stroke. And it's frightening. It's also painful. And I remember, I, I told you guys about my journey about when that condition, when I got the diagnosis and it was really at its worst, it forced me to wrestle with God and the Bible about pain and suffering. I couldn't settle for some Christian cliche. I couldn't settle for a Hallmark answer or a Christian bumper sticker answer about why there's suffering in the world. I needed to know if God is actually good and I needed to know if there were truths from the word of God that I could actually cling on to in my suffering. And I described that when I get those episodes, and thankfully I haven't had many lately, and I haven't had a severe one in a long time, but when I was at the peak of this condition, and I'd have those episodes, I would go to the hospital, and I'd be laying in a hospital bed, all these symptoms would go through my body, get numbness on one side, and I'd lose my ability to speak, I'd start slurring my speech, and then at the peak of it, I lose my ability not only to speak, but actually to even think in words, and that's the scary, that's the scary point of it. I remember one in particular where I was laying there and the numbness on one side of my body had graduated into really a burning pain just from head to toe. My tongue is all numb and I am losing my ability to think in words. And as I was in that suffering, I saw in my mind like a giant lever, you know, like an on-off switch where there's just two choices. And while I couldn't even verbalize or think in words, I knew what the lever was. 
I was either gonna turn toward God with my pain and believe that he was good and wanted to help me out, or I was gonna turn away from him because of my pain and believe that he was against me. And last week, that's really where we ended the message is that in your suffering, you have that same switch. The ultimate choice of your suffering is, are you going to turn to God believing that he's good or turn away from him believing he's against you? And when you're in that moment, when you're in that agony, it's perfectly normal to wonder this. We all wrestle with this. You're not unspiritual if you've thought this or if you've wrestled with this. By God's grace, somehow he gave me the willpower to just say, I don't understand, but I'm just gonna turn to you. And as I did that, then I began to study scripture and I wanna share with you today an answer to this question that for me has given me stability, it's given me perspective, it's given me both intellectual answers as well as at a heart level, just a peace that God is not against me when I'm suffering. So can I share it with you today? Here's our big idea from God's word today. God does not create problems, he fixes them. God does not create problems, he fixes them. And when evil, when pain, when suffering come into your life, we're gonna see there's an enemy of your soul, a supernatural spiritual enemy of your soul. We call him Satan or the devil. He wants you to think that God is against you. He wants you to think that God is torturing you. He wants you to think that God is the one who creates problems when actually it's him who creates problems. And so this is the foundational truth because it's really underneath that lever. Will I turn away from God or will I turn toward God? Well, under the surface, it's really, do I believe God is mean and against me or do I believe God is good and for me? And I wanna show you today from scripture four facts, four scriptural truths that support this belief that has anchored my life that God does not create my problems. He's not the author of my pain and evil. Rather, he's the fixer. God's not a problem maker. He's a problem solver. And that's actually fact number one, if you wanna fill it in in your notes. Fact number one is this. God is not the author of evil in my life. God is not the author of evil in my life. We're gonna look at a few different scriptures that support each of these facts. And the first support for this is found in James chapter one, where we're told that every good and perfect gift comes down from the father of lights, from God the father, and that he doesn't change in his nature. In other words, everything that's good in the universe and everything that's good in your life comes from God. The warmth of the sunshine, the warmth of a hug from a loved one, everything that is nourishing and good and brings life is from God, and that's his nature. His nature doesn't change. He's a giver of good gifts. Now, if you want to turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, and we'll put this text on the screen in just a moment, Genesis chapter 1 tells our family story, if you will, about pain and suffering. If God's nature is good, why is there evil in the world? We're gonna find out the answer to that question in God's word. And in Genesis chapter one, we're gonna enter a world that God created where there was no death, there was no murder, there was no cancer, there were no shootings, there was no disease. It was a perfect world that God created. And let's look at it in Genesis chapter one. By the way, so interesting to me, when we think of 
the complex question of suffering and evil and pain with a good God that there's, you know, a thousand some chapters in the Bible and God decides at the very beginning, it's in the first few hundred words that he tells us, here's where pain and suffering came from. And just like my Volkswagen Golf that would honk the horn at every left turn, God says right at the beginning of his love letter to you, the world you're living in is not what I intended for you. Sometimes when you battle with a health condition, you start to learn about your family history and realize, oh, our family has a history of this kind of cancer. Or our family has a history of alcoholism or of bipolar depression or some other mental or physical disorder. You realize it's in my DNA. I've kind of inherited this. And what we're going to see here in Genesis chapter 1 is that as part of the human family, all of us have inherited a world and bodies that are broken. So in Genesis chapter 1, before all the evil, God blesses Adam and Eve. And I started our text here because this word blessed is powerful if you think of it. This is the nature of God. He's a giver of good gifts. He's a blesser. This is his heart. God blessed them, which is Adam and Eve, the first humans. And he said to them, be fruitful. So this is why God created humanity. Not to suffer. Not because he wanted some punching bag. But because he wanted to bless humanity, he wants humanity to be fruitful. He wants them to increase in number and he wants them to fill the earth. And this word subdue means to manage. In other words, I've created this perfect world for you. Now in Adam and Eve's case, at this point, there is no evil, sin, or death yet. They are in perfectly fit immortal bodies. And they're living in a literal paradise. They're never gonna get wrinkles they're never going to age physically. They're never going to experience disease or death or sickness. They're never going to go hungry or thirsty. And God gives them a stocked garden full of organic fruits and vegetables. There are no weeds. There are no pesticides. And these fruits and vegetables are probably like bigger than ours because ours are affected by the fall we're going to see. And so all the nutrition they need is in this delicious food that is just theirs for the taking. They don't have to pull any weeds. They don't have to run any tractors. This is the world that God created. Let's continue reading. Next it says this, For Adam and Eve rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you. I mean, think about how much it costs to go out and buy a farm. And God says, here's this whole planet that is a farm that is perfectly self-sustaining and has no flaws, and I, I give it to you. Again, this is God's nature to bless, for us to be fruitful, to give to us. I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. Fact number one, God is not the author of evil in our lives. But we're about to see this. Because God is loving, he not only gives humanity this great setting and these great bodies, but he also gives them choice. As I was talking with my six-year-old Zoe and we're driving, and I was thinking, how do I explain free choice and free will to my six-year-old daughter? And I thought, you know, Zoe, you know me and mommy, we love each other. Part of how you know we love each other is that we chose each other. There was a day in our lives, our wedding day, where we both chose to say, I choose you over everyone else. And the reality is, without choice, there is no love. 
You can't have love without choice. And so God creates this perfect world for Adam and Eve, but then in love, he gives them choice. You don't have to have things my way. You can choose. And this is where we sometimes wrestle. Why did God even give them the choice? I kind of wish he hadn't. But he did because choice is at the center of love. You can't love without choice. For Zoe, I explained it this way. She hasn't seen any horror movies, so this didn't scare her, okay? I said, if you were to take someone and handcuff them to the chair in the living room and they could never leave the house, they would be in our house forever, but would we know if they liked us or loved us? We wouldn't know because they wouldn't have a choice to leave. But if you just invite someone in and say, hey, I want to spend my life with you like me and mommy did, and they stay in your house, and it's not because they're handcuffed to a chair, but it's because they want to, then you know they love you. Love is a choice. So God makes this perfect house for Adam and Eve, but he doesn't handcuff them to a chair. He says, I love you, I want the best for you, I'm gonna give you choice. So what's the choice? Well, God essentially says, if you imagine it as a house, you see that door over there? That door will bring evil and death into your world if you ever open it. What I desire for you is to walk with you in this garden and to know you and to nourish you and care for you for eternity. My desire for you is that you will never know what evil is, you'll never experience it, you'll never know what death is. But because I don't handcuff you to a chair, there's a door over there. If you want evil and death, if you wanna be separated from me, I'm telling you, please don't open the door but I'm not gonna lock the door, it's up to you. So we don't know, Adam and Eve in the garden, we don't know if they were there for thousands of years before they opened that door or for a few days, we don't know. God doesn't tell us the timeline. But here's how God describes the door in Genesis chapter two, verse 15, the door of free will or free choice. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it and the Lord commanded the man, you are free. If you circle in your Bible, you might circle those three words. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. This whole paradise, I made it for you. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, there's this tree over here, this door, that if you pick that fruit, if you eat it, it will unlock evil and evil will come into this perfect world that I've created. And I'm not saying, if you eat that fruit, I'll be so mad at you that I'm gonna punish you. That's not the idea. The idea is there is evil out there. I'm protecting you from it. And I'm giving you the choice. If you want evil, it will come into your life. And these will be the consequences. So because I love you, I'm saying, please don't do that to yourself. And actually God continues and he says this, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Adam and Eve, if you unlock that door, if you open that door, if you bring evil into your world, your descendants will never be the same. Later, God's gonna say, you're gonna now have pain in childbirth. As a result of it, your kids are gonna kill each other. Cain and Abel, one of them kills the other one. As a result, humanity, the actual, the earth will be changed. There's gonna be weeds, there's gonna be thorns, there's gonna be thistles. Now animals are gonna eat each other. Now people are gonna kill each other. Now there's gonna be pain and suffering. So God warns them. He says, don't do it. 
but I, res- I give you free choice. So if God created a perfect world, well, what went wrong? Fact number two, Satan brought evil, pain, and suffering into our world. And he did this by deceiving Adam and Eve into opening that door, if you will, into disobeying God. If you go back to the idea that I described in my mind of that lever, I'm either gonna turn, to, turn away from God or turn to God, Satan comes to Adam and Eve and he convinces them to not believe this God who had done so much for them. He convinces them to turn the lever away from God. And when they do, they open the door and evil rushes in like a flood and has infected planet Earth and our very nature ever since. Satan brought evil and pain and suffering. Jesus puts it this way in John chapter 10. He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And he's referring to Satan here. But I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. So Satan is the one who's the author of death, of destruction, and of stealing the good things out of our lives. Satan is the author of that. And as a deceiver, he loves it if we blame God for what he's doing in our lives. So Satan brought evil, pain, and suffering into our world. When I was talking about this with my six-year-old Zoe, she said, well, who's Satan? Good question. Said, Satan's a fallen angel. She said, what's a fallen angel? Said, good question. (laughs) So angels are supernatural beings. We don't see them. They're in the unseen realm, typically. And uh, they're, they're created beings. So they're not gods. There's only one true God. But they are of a higher order than us intellectually. They're smarter than us. This is part of why Satan, he's a cunning deceiver. You can't outsmart Satan or any of the angels. You just gotta admit they're smarter than we are, okay? Uh, Just like humans, God made angels unique. Different angels have different roles in, in eternity and in heaven and different giftings. And Isaiah chapter 14 describes this one angel who was in God's presence in heaven. His name was Lucifer. And if you're a nerd and you want to study it, it's in Isaiah 14, and I think the other place is Ezekiel 38. And Lucifer, what happens is all these angels are gathered around God, and they're doing angel things. (laughs) But Lucifer really commits the first sin, which is a mix of pride and jealousy. You see, because God gave Lucifer very significant gifts— He was high in the order of the angels. He starts to look at God and say, why is everyone worshiping God? I'm pretty special too. And Lucifer starts a whisper campaign. Maybe you've been in a church or a business or a family where you've heard a whisper campaign where people start to say, oh, we can't trust so-and-so. And the authority, the leadership begins to get undermined. And what happens, Lucifer actually convinces one-third of the angels to have a rebellion against God. This is why I love watching Transformers cartoons with my son Jack, because it's this epic struggle between good and evil. And the evil Transformers are called the Decepticons, just like the Deceiver. And the reality is whenever I watch a movie or read a story where it's an epic struggle between good and evil, it resonates with my heart. Why? Because I'm a character in a story that is an epic struggle between good and evil. And you are too, whether or not you realize it. 
And so these angels get together and they decide we're gonna overthrow God. We're gonna make Lucifer God. Well, God kicks them out of heaven. And by the way, this is one of those odd evidences of God's compassion and patience. God's nature never changes. He is loving and compassionate and patient. He's also just. So even with the angels who rebelled against him, he could have obliterated them that very moment, annihilated them. They no longer exist. For whatever reason, and it's a question I'll ask God when I get to heaven, instead of obliterating them, he kicks them out. And so there's been this struggle ever since. And we know from the book of Revelation, at the end of human history, God is gonna chain Satan and Lucifer and all those demons. He's gonna throw them into a lake of fire so they can never destroy his creation again. But what happened is Satan sneaks into the Garden of Eden one day and he starts to deceive Adam and Eve in the same way that he still deceives today to get them to move the lever away from trusting God to doubting God. And here's how it happens in Genesis chapter three. Satan says this to Adam and Eve. Remember, the last words we saw from God are, if you open that door, you will die. What does Satan say? You will not certainly die. Don't trust God. Don't believe God. You can't trust the guy. He's holding out on you. I know he looks good. He gave you all this stuff for free, but he's holding out on you. He's not telling you the truth. Satan comes as a deceiver and the serpent says to the woman, for God knows that when you eat that fruit, when you open that door and let evil into your world, your eyes will be open. Now here's what's interesting. This part of what Satan says is true, but this part is a lie. And you need to know in your life, when Satan comes to you, he'll do the same thing today. He will mix nine parts truth with one part lie. And he will put just enough lie in the cocktail that is poisonous to your soul. And the way he does this in your life is he'll say, oh, there's that weird stuff in the Bible you don't understand, so don't trust any of the Bible. Or there's that one church that hurt you, so don't go to any church. Or there's those weird pastors who wear Rolexes and fly in private jets, so don't listen to any pastor. Right? He will come to you with truth and he'll mix in just enough error to pull you away from God. And that's what he does here. Because the reality is Adam and Eve had never seen evil. Their eyes were not opened to it. And God did that for their own good. And what Satan's saying here is true. If they invite evil into their world, they will see it. And we will see it. And we do see it. So here's what happens. Satan says, you will become like God. If you open that door, if you eat that fruit, that's a really, that Satan's like the ultimate PR or marketing person, right? In other words, you're going to have cancer. Your kids are going to kill each other. You're going to have pain in childbirth. All these terrible things are going to happen. But you know, one way to put it is you'll become like God and you'll know good and evil. And technically that's true. But Adam and Eve had no clue what all that meant. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took it and she ate it. And in case anyone ever tries to turn the genders against each other here, okay, let's be clear. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. In other words, Adam and Eve both chose to flip the switch and say, we don't trust God. We don't believe what God has said. We're gonna believe the lies of this snake who's talked to us for a few minutes 
instead of the promises of the God who gave us a body and a garden and everything we need. And they chose evil. They opened the door and like a flood of black ink, evil rushes into planet Earth. The tectonic plates are affected. The weather patterns are affected. God says, now there will be thorns in the ground. Now animals will eat each other. Now you will die. Now you will have pain in childbirth. It's never gonna be the same And so that's why the world we live in does not function the way it was designed to function. A few takeaways at this point is to understand I'm born into a creation that is infected. And so when pain comes into my life, it doesn't mean God is punishing me. It means I'm born into a world that is broken. That's a a takeaway. Another takeaway is this. I'm not being singled out when I go through hard times. Another takeaway is this, the pain and the suffering in my life, they don't originate in God, they originate in Satan as well as the choices of other people. Sometimes it's physical abuse, sometimes it's a shooter in a public setting, sometimes it's stuff we do to ourselves. I mean, I've had couples in marriage counseling where the guy has, you know, had an affair, he's addicted to all sorts of stuff, he's, you know, just run his marriage into the ground and he'll say to me, why is God doing this to my marriage? Well, bro, I hate to say it, but God's not doing it. You're doing it, okay? And sometimes it's our own problems, but very often with cancer, with injustice, it's the evil of other people. And again, Satan would love to have you flip the switch and say you can't trust God because of what other people or you have done to yourself. Let me give you a physical picture of this. It's a true story about a woman named Judy Padilla. Judy Padilla lived in Colorado, and in the 1970s, she applied for a job that she really wanted. The job had a great salary, great benefits. She got all her references together. She went through all the interviews, and she finally got the job. And as part of the job, she worked at this huge complex. Here's an aerial photo of it. There were 5,000 people who worked here together with Judy at this massive complex. So every morning, Judy's day would go like this. She'd wake up. She would make lunches for her kids and her husband. She'd see her kids off to the bus stop. Her husband would leave for his job. Judy would get in her white 1975 Volkswagen Beetle. I do not know if the horn honked when she turned left. It's possible. And she would drive to her job at this facility, which is called Rocky Flats. And what Judy did, she worked in this glove box, it's called, where there's all these protective coverings, and she would shape the plutonium detonator of an atomic warhead. You see, it was the height of the Cold War with the Soviet Union. And the United States and the Soviet Union were building as many nuclear weapons as they could. And the thing about Rocky Flats is that the floors were always polished and the walls were always painted. And everything was organized and humming and everyone had their credentials and everyone had little radiometers on them to make sure they weren't getting radiation poisoning. And Judy just loved her job. She loved what she did. She loved the benefits. She loved the salary. She worked there for about 20 years. And then one day there was a raid. The FBI and the EPA simultaneously raided Rocky Flats. And what they found is that the managers of the facility had been lying about the radiation counts. Had actually been tampering with the radiometers that employees would wear. And the reality is that the whole facility, which looked so shiny and clean was actually contaminated with an invisible radiation. Judy Padilla, years later, would get breast cancer, like so many of 
her coworkers, in her case, from leaning up against this glove box and doing her job. It's a sad story, and to me, it's a very visual story of the world that we've been born into. You see, just like Judy for so many years going about her job, getting her promotions, getting her pay raises, getting her new cars, taking care of her family, she lived in a world that was invisibly contaminated, not even knowing it. And when we start life out and we're young and we're healthy and maybe you haven't gone through any kind of major abuse or trauma or injustice and your body's working great, your career's going pretty good, the sun's shining and you think, hey, this is pretty much heaven. Life's pretty good here. The older you get, the more of life you see, you start to realize that whether or not you believe in God or angels or any of that stuff, there is evil in our world. And somehow you have to deal with that. Where does it actually come from? And what I've found in God's word is the most satisfying answer that God created a good world. That's why we still have beautiful sunsets, incredible human bodies, even as broken as they are, but it is infected at every level. Our DNA is broken. That's why we get cancer and sickness. Our relationships are broken. Our very planet is broken and we have natural disasters. So the next question is this. Okay, God is good. Our ancestors and Satan messed up his good creation. Well, what's he gonna do about it? I mean, if I'm honest with myself, I've tried to put myself in God's shoes on this one. Here's a situation I've had with my kids at home. I've had a situation kind of like God in the garden where I say, hey, I'm putting some cookies in the oven. Here are some glasses of milk. There are no lids on these glasses. These are not sippy cups. If you spill them, I will be upset and your milk will be gone. So please be very, very careful. This happens repeatedly. So, you know, getting the cookies out of the oven or if it's Oreos out of the container and you turn your back and you hear, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. Man, it's either laugh or cry, right? (laughs) And in that moment, you know what I feel like doing? I feel like my nature's like, you're never gonna have milk again or you will be drinking from a sippy cup until you leave for college. (laughs) I will never trust you with free choice and free will ever again. Right, I think most of our natures, if we could actually be honest with ourselves and put ourselves in God's shoes, when Adam and Eve messed it up and so many humans continue to mess it up, what would we do? We would just wipe it away. We would just obliterate them, just be done with them. They don't have to suffer, but just boom, they're wiped out. There is no more humanity. There is no more Lucifer. There's, but for some reason, God's nature is patient and compassionate and loving And so what does God do when Satan and our ancestors infect his prized creation? He decides that he himself will get involved to come down and start a cleanup operation and actually start a rescue mission. And so here's fact number three that you need to know when you're suffering. One, God's not the author of your pain. Two, Satan is. Three, God's heart is to deliver you. This is God's heart for you. He wants to deliver you out of what you're going through. And not only you, he wants to deliver the nations. He wants to deliver humanity from all of the fallout and all of the consequences of the evil that both Satan and our ancestors have brought into our world. 
I'm about to show you a verse that you've probably seen before, but before we put it on the screen, I want to take you back to Transformers. I told you with my son Jack how we watched the evil Decepticons battle against the good Transformers. I want you to just think about what we've learned from Genesis so far. We are in an epic struggle between good and evil. God is this good creator. He didn't cause all the problems. Now that they're here, he could wipe us out, but instead his heart is to help us. Now let's look at a verse that you've probably seen or heard before, and maybe it'll have a little bit of new meaning. For God so loved this world that he made, all the people in it, all the beauty of it, that when it got messed up by an adversary, he decided to get involved and he gave his one and only son, that's Jesus, the Christ of Christianity. Why did God take on a human body and humble himself? Why did he come down here and cry our tears and feel our pain and feel our temptation and know what it's like to have a hungry stomach and know what it's like to be rejected by friends and know what it's like to carry the weight of injustice and false accusations? Why did he do all that? Well, it's so that anyone who believes in him, anyone who wants to flip the switch back to him, Okay, we've been born into a world where the switch is flipped away from him. And we're born with hearts where the switch is flipped away from him. Anyone who wants to turn back to him, he's going to make a way through Jesus to be reconnected, to experience what you were designed to experience in the Garden of Eden. So that anyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And eternal life, amen, in a place where there's a tree of life. And we'll live like Adam and Eve were supposed to live. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. In other words, Jesus didn't come to the world. It's not like, hey, we were all just going to have a perfect life and Jesus came. And now if you don't believe in Jesus, God's mad at you. So he's going to send you to hell and he hates you if you don't believe in Jesus. It's the opposite. If you picture a conveyor belt All of humanity is in a bubble, all the history. We're in a bubble on a conveyor belt that is on its way to death and destruction. And that's why it says, if you don't believe in him, you're gonna perish already. But instead, he comes into the world and he says, anyone who believes in me, I'm creating a way to flip the switch back toward God. Jesus does not come into your life to condemn you. Jesus does not come into your life to condemn you. God is not the problem maker. He's the problem solver. He comes into your life to save you. And he came into our world to save and rescue our world. 1 Timothy chapter 2 puts it this way. How does God feel about you and your neighbors and your grandkids? Well, God, our Savior, he wants, this is the word for free will, the Greek word thelema. It's God's desire that all people would be saved. God wants everyone to trust in Christ. He wants everyone to be saved. But just like Adam and Eve, he gives you the choice. His desire is that you'd choose him and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Remember, the supernatural realm is all about truth and error. I skipped a note earlier on your outline under fact two about Satan, and it's this. Satan's primary weapon for destroying people is deceiving them. You see, this is all about truth and error. Satan deceived Adam and Eve. He wants to deceive you. But through the knowledge of the truth, we can be saved. Fact number four, faith in Christ will deliver me out of my pain 
and sustain me. Fact number four, it's not only that God's heart is to rescue you, but God chose to take on a human body and with his hands and feet reach out and ultimately be sacrificed in your place so that he took his death, your death upon himself so that he could give you life. Faith in Christ will deliver you out of the pains of this world and it will sustain you in this world. Will deliver us from evil. Interestingly, when Jesus taught us to pray, very short prayer, the Lord's Prayer, it includes our Father in heaven, deliver us from evil. Part of a mature Christian understanding of the Bible is understanding I live in a world that's infected by evil. And so evil will make its way into my life. And when it happens, it's not unspiritual to hurt, but I know that I will be delivered out of this world. And I wanna give you a picture of that. A few years ago, there were 33 miners who were working in a gold mine in Chile, or Chile if you prefer, okay? These 33 miners were about one mile underground when the mine shaft collapsed above them and they were trapped in the rubble. And here's a diagram of this mine that goes way, way down and the guys are trapped all the way down here. And for two weeks, the world assumed these 33 miners were dead. But then one day, some explorers were drilling down with a drill bit and the drill bit came back up to the surface and taped to the end of the drill bit was this message written in red Sharpie, we are alive in the refuge, the 33 of us. And the whole world realized these 33 guys are alive and they're trapped down there almost a mile underground in the rubble. And it began this international global rescue effort. NASA got involved, all sorts of nations got involved to figure out how can we first sustain those guys and keep them alive and secondly, how can we get them out of there? And so they drilled that hole where the message came up a little bit bigger and they started to drop down, kind of like the old ATM tubes. <laughs> they started to drop down supplies. Here's some of the supplies. They would send down toothbrushes and medicine and oranges and bread and PlayStation consoles, okay? <laughs> These guys for 69 days are trapped in the darkness. Here's a picture of them together in the darkness. And you know what? If you're a Christian and you're going through suffering, you need to know this is you right now. And you've got a church family here. We're all trapped in this broken world together. And here's what God promises for all who believe in Christ. Number one, we will be rescued out of the pain of this world. Number two, he will sustain us in this world. That's why Jesus taught us to pray every day, our Father in heaven, give us today our daily bread. For 69 days, these guys were trapped down here. Would seem unbearable, but why was it bearable? They knew it was gonna end. They knew that rescue was on the way and they knew that every day, enough supplies for the day would be dropped down from above. We are in a creation that is fallen and broken by evil. God is still in a perfect realm of heaven. He drilled in the person of Jesus a connection between the two worlds. And every day as we look to him, we say, God, give me today my daily bread. He drops down just enough for today. Sometimes we panic and we say, God, I don't know if I have enough to retire for 30 years. He says, hey, daily bread, okay? Daily bread, ask him for your daily bread and he will provide it. But secondly, this rescue, they started to drill the tunnel bigger and bigger until they got it about this big around and NASA designed this capsule called the Phoenix Rescue Capsule. 
had wheels on the side. There's a guy inside of here, a metal door that closes. And eventually they got that tunnel drilled out after 69 days and they threaded down with steel cable this Phoenix rescue capsule all the way to the bottom and it thudded on the rock floor of the mine shaft at the very bottom. And every one of these guys had a choice. Will I step into the rescue? Will I place my faith in this rescue capsule? Will I believe that the steel cable is strong enough to not break when I'm half a mile up in this tunnel? And will I believe in it for my salvation and deliverance out of the darkness and the pain? Jesus says in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's one channel out of this broken world into a perfect paradise of eternity, and it's Jesus And I've had some well-meaning friends say to me at times, well, John, isn't that a little bit narrow that Jesus is the only way to heaven? And the answer is yes, it is narrow. Just like the rescue out of that collapsed mine shaft was narrow. But here's the thing, it's open to you. It's open to everybody. It's not narrow in the sense that anyone is excluded. Anyone can place their faith. Anyone can step into the rescue capsule of what Jesus has done on the cross and say, I believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. Anyone can receive it. Actually, if you think of dramatic rescues, they're almost all narrow. So the real question, the right question isn't, is it narrow? The question is, is it available to me? And the answer is yes, it's available to you. How do you step into that rescue capsule? Romans 10 verse nine tells us how if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Jesus, you are God. And if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you profess faith and are saved. And so what I wanna encourage you with today is very simply this. Number one, God is not the author of the evil in your life. Two, Satan and your ancestors are the author of the evil. Three, because that evil is real, God sacrificed himself to deliver you out of it. And four, if you will place your faith in Christ today, you can live every day knowing this world is not the end for me. I will be delivered out of here. And some days when the suffering's really bad, that gets really real. And the other part is you will be sustained while you're here. Every day you wake up here, even if you're going to uh, chemotherapy treatments, God has a purpose for you here. You see, we are surrounded by neighbors and widows and kids without dads who are living in the collapsed mineshaft and they don't know that there's a way out. They don't know that there's hope. They don't know that supplies are coming down from above. And so our role as a church is to, to go out into the mineshaft, into the dark corners and say, there's hope, come with us. There's a rescue over here. So in our suffering we actually get reminded of what reality is and that is that our God is good and for us. I wanna pray that for you now. Father, thank you that you love every person in this room. And Lord, despite the pain of miscarriages and death, of betrayal and cancer, of injustice and murder, of drunk drivers and of natural disasters, You look down on us with compassion. And Jesus, Lord, you have compassion on every person in this room. You desire that every person in this room would be rescued. You desire to fix our problems. Lord, right now in our hearts, we just wanna look at that big old three or four foot switch 
and we wanna flip it to trusting in you, believing in you. Lord, at the foundation of our lives, we're either gonna believe that you're evil and against us or good and for us. And I just pray across this room that you will help us today to believe that you are good and for us. Lord, as we take communion in just a minute, in just a minute we wanna just take this time of meditation to flip the switch and to thank you, Jesus, it's because of the cross that we are gonna be rescued and we will be sustained. We pray it all in Jesus' name, amen.